War is hell. The sheer number of war crimes we saw in Artsakh this past fall was disastrous, devastating. From beheadings and banned cluster munitions to the use of Islamic mercenaries, as well as one of the most horrendous forms of chemical warfare, the use of white phosphorus. You may have seen the footage over social media. Though it looks like sparkling snowfall coming down on the Artsakh forest, this incendiary chemical is one of the most flammable, poisonous, destructive weapons to be used in modern warfare. To create some perspective, white phosphorus can melt through steel. You can only imagine the horrifically devastating impacts it has on the environment and its human victims. Though we may not be surprised at the long list of war crimes at the hands of the Azerbaijani government, what is surprising is that despite the desolating power of white phosphorus, its use in war is not yet clearly recognized under international law. Here to fill us in on why that is, is Finn Depensier, the multimedia journalist who has been in Armenia since the peak of the war in October, documenting the situation for outlets like the Canadian C2C Journal and, most recently, Zartonk Media. Originally from Canada, this dedicated journalist has dove in fully into investigating white phosphorus use, its detrimental effects, and why the international community needs to be paying closer attention to this conflict, to this chemical that falls like snow, but burns hotter than hell. So join us as we discuss the reign of terror, white phosphorus in Artsakh, with Finn Depensier. I'm Krista Marina Apardian. And I'm Haig Minasian. And you're listening to Haituk Talks, the official podcast of the AYF West. A couple of Armenians talking in the world. Hey, Finn. Barev Vonses, thank you for being here, man. Barev. Uh, dude, I've been following uh, your work since you got to Armenia. Uh, I don't know if I came across you through American Gopnik page or through Zartonk, but um, no, I've been following your work and uh, I'm, you know, it's amazing stuff, man. Thank you for all the things you've documented and reported on out there. It means a lot. And uh, I'm also a fan of your photography. Uh, I've been seeing a lot of really good, like, yeah, landscape photos of Sunik and Armenia, but and I think I saw recently uh, some of your photography from Sunik. So you were just there probably recently, right? Like last week. I was there like four or five days ago. I've made, uh, I think, five different trips to Sunik in yeah. total now since I've been here. I, I did want to ask, since, you know, we're seeing a bunch of stuff on uh, Zartong's page or just through uh, news in general, but could you tell us something that maybe we're not seeing on the news about Sunik that's going on over there? Um, I'm not sure what I can tell you that we haven't already reported. Um, as a big news outlet, we do get sent a lot of things that are, you know, uncorroborated or they'll jeopardize uh, troop locations in the area. Um, so we, 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 you know, we sit on a lot of stories and talk about them with the team. Um, and ultimately some things we just can't publish. Um, mm -hmm. what I can tell you though, is that there's been, uh, there's been a full military mobilization in the area. Um, and the, uh, the, the Russian peacekeepers, um, are also out in force, uh, three cargo planes, uh, landed in Yerevan from Moscow a couple of weeks ago. Um, which carries a lot of equipment. Um, and I guess the hope is for another uh, Russian military base in Sunik in the near future that would um, uh, 
that that would allow for you know a, a lot more stability in the region, a lot more certainty. Um, it's the uncertainty about what's going on that's really freaking everybody out. Um, it's uh, it's kind of inexplicable the way that the government has been dealing with this and um, the way that uh, these areas have just been allowed to move into Armenian territory with impunity, more POWs being captured. Um, so I think no matter where you fall uh, on the political line in Armenia, and I don't really uh, get too political here because I'm very new to the country, but uh, the situation has been handled very poorly. Um, I was talking to a soldier uh, just outside of Sevlich. I was 18 years old, like most of them. And I asked him uh, how he felt when he first learned that the, the Turks had invaded and, or well, the Azeris. And he said, I, I thought we would have pushed them back immediately. Like, I don't really know what's going on. So uh, it's, it's as confusing and, and inexplicable to a lot of the soldiers out there as it is to everybody else watching. It's very frustrating for sure. We know you're out there, Finn, as well, working on this documentary, which we're very excited about. Um, but before we get to that and more about what, what you just spoke about, um, we were curious, how did you end up leaving Canada, you know, a safe Western country, to go to wartime Armenia? The Sunni border, like, how did you end up there, you know? Yeah, well, it's, it's a good question. Um, I think it's really important for people to understand that where I live in downtown Yerevan, Kentron, Armenia, it's very, very safe. Um, and a couple of years ago, I think Yerevan was actually rated um, one of the one of the safest cities in Europe. Whether it's actually in Europe is debatable, but it's a very safe place. Um, and so that's why I feel comfortable living here. Um, and then I make you know intermittent trips out to um, recently Sunik and back in November I went to Artsakh or Artsakh. Is that how I would pronounce it? I, I can't curl my uh, vowels very well. Whatever it is. You're not curling your R, you're curling your K. It's very, very... But you can do the curl that R though, right? The R, the, the French R. Yeah, it's not, it's not natural for me at all. Um, so I came out here back in November on a contract with Palladium Magazine and C2C Journal, uh, the former being an American publication uh, run by a couple guys in Toronto and, and a guy in Stanford. Uh, and then C2C Journal is like a long form publication based in Toronto. Um, I always wanted to do something like this. I almost uh, went to Hong Kong back in, I guess, 2018 to cover the democracy yeah, uprising there. Um, yeah. So conflict journalism has always been uh, something I uh, wanted to pursue. Um, and for whatever reason, Armenia just happened to be my first on the ground trip. Um, I mean, I was only supposed to be here for three weeks, but I just fell in love with the country so much and I had so much more work to do. So I, uh, I raised some money on, uh, PayPal and GoFundMe. And, uh, then I came back at the end of January. Um, and then I approached Sartonk with a collection of footage that I shot in the hospitals, uh, for this documentary about white phosphorus. And uh, they agreed to take me on board um, and help make that film a reality. And I've been with them ever since, working on that documentary and a number of other assorted projects. No, very cool. Uh, I actually wanted to ask, ask a quick question. What's more difficult, 
traveling to Sunik or traveling in Canada right now, going back and forth with all the COVID regulations, what would you say? Yeah, uh, well, definitely Sunik. <laughs> definitely, enough. definitely Sunik, but that's another reason why I'm here. Yeah, uh, Toronto, where I live, has uh, has like had down. Yeah, yeah, it's the lo- longest lockdowns in North America. Um, like gyms have been closed for over 300 days. Uh, it's it's really absurd. Um, and Armenia is completely free. I mean, um, and I understand, you know, people who wish the government was a little more uh, punitive and still enforcing the guidelines. But my understanding is basically after the war happened, they didn't have a choice but to open up the country entirely. So, so. yeah. How long will you be there, Finn, in Armenia? So I'm tentatively supposed to leave on June 25th. Um, but I'm talking with Van and Zavin right now, and I might stay a little longer. Um, I have to go home and get some free healthcare and talk to my friends and show them I'm still alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll, I'll be returning soon for sure. Uh, it's, it's been, um, it's, it's been a miraculous, uh, success for me in Armenia. And it's been, uh, it's just an absolute pleasure immersing myself in this culture that I knew nothing about before I really came here. Man, I was hoping to see you though. I was, I'm gonna be out there in July, so I hope you come back in time. But I'll, I'll be seeing you around. But oh, yeah. for sure, right? I'll, I'll, I'll be back. I'll be back. I mean, so, uh, I mean, I, I do wish you could have experienced Armenia and Artsakh like before all this had happened. Like, you're seeing it. It's a yeah. cool country. The people are awesome. I mean, uh, but. Uh, what were your expectations like did these meet them or break your expectations of the country the places you went everything in general <clears throat> i mean i had no idea that it was going to be such a peaceful and hospitable place um i was a little scared when i first arrived in Yerevan, um and much to my own ignorance because i just i just didn't know anything about the country and if you look on a map you wouldn't expect it to be a very safe country but it is um there's like no murders, no kidnappings in that sense, you know, like it's, it's really just the, yeah. the front line. Yeah. And yeah. And, and there, yeah, there's very little, uh, street crime. The crime there is, is, you know, crimes of opportunity because people are so poor. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't know. It's, it's definitely exceeded my expectations. It's a very impressive place. Um, so you, you didn't know anything, about, you didn't know anything about Armenia before getting to Armenia or I knew a little bit right so when the war started I was um covering it on my social media um and I had dated this Armenian girl um when I was like I don't know 19 or 20 um so I reconnected with her once this all happened um she sort of introduced me to uh like Armenian demonstrations in Toronto and helped me like um get access to the community. So before I came to Armenia, I was going to demonstrations and interviewing people. Um, So I did want to ask you, Finn, like, what was, what did you know about Armenia before even the war started and stuff? Um, Before the war started, I didn't know much. It it occupied a very foggy um, place in my mind. Um, I mean, I knew, about the Armenian genocide and um, I've always been interested in um, uh, Turkey's involvement in the region but I I followed very closely what Turkey's been doing to the Kurds so it was it was a uh, it was was a natural story for me to pursue I guess Um, 
before I came to Armenia, like during the war, I was traveling to demonstrations in Toronto mm -hmm. and Ottawa, talking to community leaders and just, you know, average Armenians, asking them about, um, asking about their country, asking them about what was happening, what they thought the Canadian government should do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you've, especially as a journalist, if you just Google Azerbaijan, you'll see which country you'd probably have an easier time doing what you want to do, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, yeah. that's another big thing. Armenia is completely free, right? And I, I would not, I, I've had uh, very little problems with um, the government here in terms of my reporting. They've gotten the way almost never, uh, with the exception of a couple pictures that I took in Sunik, um, yeah. which uh, I submitted to them beforehand because I knew they were probably sensitive. And they were like, yeah, I didn't post these. I was like, okay. And, it, and that was all. Um, that was the extent of uh, problems That's I've had with the government here. I was taking pictures outside of Pashinian's house, and uh, <laughs> cops Dude, like me, took my camera. They made me delete a bunch of things. But that's a head of state, so it's, it's a little understandable. Yeah, I mean, that's why, in general, journalists who've been covering this war, um, if you want to go on the ground, you, you it's it's much easier to come to Armenia. Although some have gone to both, but I mean, I'm banned for life from Azerbaijan now, having been to Artsakh, right? So. Yeah. I could never go there. So I would never go to Turkey either. Like I'm a fugitive, right? So, um, yeah. whereas if it was the other way around, if I had gone to Azerbaijan first, um, the Armenian government would have let me in here for sure. So, it's a stark contrast. Yeah. The, um, the, the government of Azerbaijan had also shut off all social media. And yeah. that's the primary way that I communicate to my readers, uh, my followers. So, it was just... Um, it, it, the, the idea of going to Azerbaijan was just dead on arrival. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's definitely a stark difference. Um, you mentioned going to, to protest both Armenian and Azadi protests. What drew you to those, uh, to begin with? Because I know, if, you know, for myself, a lot of non-Armenian friends will come to protest because they know me and they feel the connection to me and they've heard about you know, all the struggles that we faced through, through me or another Armenian friend. Did you have, you know, sort of like an Armenian friend that you grew up with, or was it just your own uh, curiosity that brought you to these protests, which trickled down to bring you to, to Armenia? It was mostly my own curiosity because I've just always wanted to pursue a career in conflict journalism. Um, I did date an Armenian girl for a short time. So she introduced me to some community members and helped me, uh, helped me with some access. Mm -hmm. Um, and then her dad gave me a lot of advice before I came to Armenia, telling me where I shouldn't go and whatnot. So yeah, um, that, that's the only Armenian connection I have, though. Really. Now I have many. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a big one. That's, that's, that's important. I mean, did, when you came to Yerevan, though, did you notice the heavy diaspora presence there? Like, it, I'm, whenever non-Armenians come to Yerevan, I'm like, dude, there's every language is around you with Armenians that speak every other language. Did you feel that or notice that at all or? Well, when I first came, I was living um, in uh, I was living at an apartment at Vagashan and Komitas, so it wasn't like so much in the city center. Mm. Uh, so everybody spoke pretty much exclusively Armenian there, and it was in November. It was cold, and like the war had just ended, so I don't think there mm -hmm. were too many tourists there. Now I live in Kentron, like Pushkin, Sadian area, so I see a lot. Like there's a lot of Russian tourists, and yeah, diaspora. And, Armenian speaking that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I um, was curious what have been some of the other challenges for you in Armenia besides, you know, 
language barrier, I'm sure, was the one starting off. You know, also the emotional toll of being there during war and post-war. You know, like, I'm, I'm curious what was going through your head throughout this this trip. Mm. Well, the language barrier is the biggest one. Um, I was filming an interview for my White Phosphorus documentary last week, and uh, my camera battery was about to die, so I had to, like, speed it up. Um, and my interpreter at the time, like he wasn't relaying back to me, uh, what the guy said in real time, like what often happens is I take home the footage and then I get my editor, Sarah, to subtitle it for me. And then I find out what they say. And it's often very, you know, profound or harrowing. And, um, I ended up cutting off this guy in the middle of a sentence where he's talking about how these doctors saved his life and he's so grateful for them. And it was a very emotional moment. Uh, so that was unfortunate. Um, in terms of the emotional toll, seeing, uh, you know, victims of war in the hospital, um, has taken some toll on me, although I, I wouldn't say I have like, uh, PTSD or anything. Um, because as, as a photographer, as a cinematographer, um, I don't really have, uh, I, I'm not really afforded, uh, letting my emotions get in the way because if I take a moment to, um, reflect and uh, just realize how harrowing and horrible what I'm seeing in front of me is, then I can't get the shot. So it's all about just um, concentrating on what my job is in that moment. I just, I'm behind the camera. I have to make sure it's steady. I have to make sure the lighting's right. I have to make sure the frame is right. Um, and then, so, you know, once, once you get home, you have some time to think about how horrible it was. And I saw some really, really horrible things in those hospitals. No. I mean, so you've you developed this documentary, The Other Front Line, uh, you know, where you documented wartime footage of Armenia and the war in general in Artsakh, but specifically in these hospitals where you saw some of the, like like you were just saying, like craziest burns and uh, injuries and, you know, uh, uh, really horrifying things and uh, especially these white phosphorus burns which are you know its own category of you know crazy horrifying. Ho yeah horrifying like uh, injury could you tell us what is white phosphorus like the science of it just kind of break it down a little bit and and why is it used okay so white phosphorus it's also known as tetraphosphorus it's a um, it's an incendiary weapon um, it has a number of different uses though. So it's used for um, obscuring thermal vision because it burns so hot. It's used to create smoke screens, um, but it's also used to burn down absolutely anything it comes into contact with. It burns hot enough to melt through steel. So you can imagine what it does to a human being. Um, and basically between October 29th to 31st, Azerbaijan engaged in a sustained um, airstrike campaign using white phosphorus to burn down uh, forests in Artsakh because that's where Armenians were um, hiding from uh, the drones, right? And so in that process, they uh, inflicted some pretty horrible environmental damage to the area and um, as well as... I remember the footage. It was like, it was, what well, was like, we were in the diaspora, we're like, what, what are we looking at right now? I mean, I guess... There's nothing to be surprised about, but we were surprised that, you know, they're, uh, they're burning down the entire landscape. And uh, it, it was very scary to see all that. And I mean, uh, and so 
a lot of our soldiers, civilians too, maybe they you got it, they got these burns on them. Could you kind of like not without getting too graphic, kind of explain what maybe the effects are on the human body? Yeah, so um, white phosphorus will keep burning until it's fully consumed. So you imagine that you drop a little particle of ignited white phosphorus on your arm, it'll, it'll, it'll just burn right through your arm. If the particle is big enough, it doesn't get, um, it doesn't get extinguished so easily. It has to, it has to be fully absorbed by the human body to stop burning. Um, I was talking to a soldier who fought in the war and he had this story where, um, uh, a truck full of, uh, dead bodies that arrived in Martuni and they, they, they were injured by white phosphorus, uh, still burning. Um, and then five minutes later, they had to get buckets of water to um, put out a fire that was started on the car because the, the phosphorus had just burned right through this stack of corpses and was now burning the car. Um, so it, it's really horrible stuff. And then furthermore, it also uh, causes a number of long-term health effects like cancers and that sort of things. It's also very poisonous. So it's, it's one of the worst weapons for truly. And, and to add to that, it's um, burns are the most horrific injuries possible because um, uh, burns affect every single nerve ending, right? So they're, they're literally the most painful injury possible. Wow. Um, what are the ways, Finn, if any, to, to treat a white, a white phosphorus injury? I mean, um, <laughs> I couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't go into too much depth, but, um, essentially if, if somebody has been injured by white phosphorus, the very first step is to wash them very thoroughly. Um, because like I said, it's very poisonous. So it's absolutely crucial to as soon as possible, um, just rid them of, uh, any phosphorus particles that are just, um, sticking out on the outside of the body. Um, and then my understanding is doctors go through the standard process of skin graphing and um, just dressing of, of, of a normal burn wound, really. It's, uh, it, it's what comes after. It's after you've been burned, um, uh, knowing the risks of cancers and all sorts of other diseases. You have to be, um, you have to go in for checkups to make sure that those things aren't developing. And it seems like there's only so much you can do with this, you know, crazy uh, burns and injuries. I mean, you were in the hospitals with these doctors, treating them. Maybe you kind of saw that there, but I mean, what was their overall impression, you know, of these burns? Had they seen them before? Were they surprised or did they know what to do? So there was one doctor there, uh, Dr. Fuad Rida. He was the first doctor in Armenia to identify that this massive influx of burns uh, coming to the burn center were caused by white phosphorus because uh, he's had prior experience dealing with white phosphorus injuries in his home of Lebanon and then also in Syria. So he uh, he knew right away that, um, uh, well, w what he knew is that it was, uh, it was extremely possible that these were white phosphorus burns. And then he had to acquire um, a bunch of black lights. So the way that they... Um, uh, the, the way that doctors identify uh, that it's a phosphorus burn before, you know, tests are sent off to a lab is with these black lights and they shine it on the, on the wound and it lights up bright green. It's a very, uh, it's a very disturbing image. Um, it's fascinating though. Yeah. 
I remember seeing them in the trailer, I think, and it, it's pretty crazy to see. And it's also like undeniable evidence that it's there. You know, when you you when you put that ultraviolet light or that black light on there, it's pretty crazy, man. Yeah, it's it's, it's very obvious. Unfortunately, the international law that governs this stuff is very fickle, and um, white phosphorus is just um, allowed to slip through the cracks. So, from what you saw. In the hospitals, in the Armenian hospitals, um, we know Armenia is a poor country, but I mean, what were the health facilities like? Like, did they have the capacity to deal with these injuries? Well, yes and no. I mean, the the doctors that that were there, so Nazi Segian, for example, she runs the burn center. She's a very experienced doctor um, and, you know, a, a crucial member of the team. But there were a lot of uh, diasporan doctors there uh, who flew into assist, um, one of which being Dr. Fuad Rida, who I mentioned earlier. He's from Lebanon, but he's been living in Armenia for like three years. And also Dr. Rafi Barsumian, who's a, uh, a burn surgeon from, L- uh, no, from New Jersey. Uh, and so Dr. Rida and Dr. Barsumian are uh, two main subjects of my film. They were uh, the most experienced burn surgeons uh, at the time, uh, and they saved a lot of people's lives. Uh, and then there was also um, Dr. Armin Shepardian. He's a physical therapist uh, from LA. He isn't uh, he doesn't specialize in the treatment of burn patients, but he was uh, he was nonetheless there helping out. Uh, there was also uh, a team of doctors from France who flew in to assist. I think some of them were Armenian, although I think that they were just most of them weren't. They were just uh, they were just there to help as as a very close ally to Armenia, right? France is Armenia's closest Western allies. So there was a lot of um, there, there there was a lot of international aid donated by France that I saw being utilized in the hospital, uh, as well as aid from the AGBU, who's uh, who's helped sponsor this documentary. By the way, I'm very grateful for their support. They've helped make it all happen, um, and so it was. It was a team effort. There, there, there were a lot of different, um, there were a lot of different people and institutions that came together to um, save all these soldiers' lives. Yeah, no, it's very powerful to see how many people, um, you know, without even thinking, bought a flight and went straight to Armenia to help out. And I think that's a yeah. huge step in, like you said, saving lives that maybe we couldn't have otherwise saved. Um, so, in the context of warfare, Finn. Um, what category does white phosphorus use fall within international law? Like, what's what's the um, what does international law say about about white phosphorus use? So, unfortunately, not a whole lot. Um, so, there's the convention on um, there's there's the protocol on certain conventional weapons, within which is the third protocol, which deals with incendiary weapons. Um, but white phosphorus isn't classified as an incendiary weapon because its primary use is an obscurant. Um, the international law basically says that uh, it, it doesn't matter that it can be used to inflict these horrible uh, these horrible burns on on people and, and and scorch the environment. It's primarily used to create smoke screens and that sort of thing. Um, so it's just this weapon that uh, states are allowed to use with impunity because. Um, the international law provides for a loophole. Um, it, it, it's very unfortunate because it's very clear that Azerbaijan was using this uh, munition uh, not not for the intent of creating a smoke screen, but 
Uh, there's there's very clear video evidence they were burning down these forests and, and a very obvious reason why uh, to kill the Armenians that were hiding underneath, um, trying to uh, uh, trying to avoid these drones, right? And then furthermore, uh, white phosphorus also isn't um, encompassed in the chemical weapon laws because um, even though white phosphorus can produce, or it, even though white phosphorus is a toxic chemical, it's uh, it's, it's it's a secondary component of the munition, um, and so uh, it's uh, the, the international law doesn't say a whole lot, basically, and that's one of the in, uh, intentions of my documentary, which is to um, provide evidence uh, for why the international law should be made more stringent. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, have do we know of other countries using white phosphorus in the same violent way? You mentioned the doctors uh, that had experienced it in Lebanon and Syria, for example. Like, where have we seen this before? Yeah, Turkey, for example, uses it against the Kurds in Syria. Uh, Israel's deployed it in Gaza. Um, they, they deployed it as recently as uh, the eleven-day conflict. The United States used it in Vietnam, although they were primarily primarily using napalm. But mm-hmm. it's, it's been around for a long time. Um, it's used by pretty much everybody, and the international law that governs this stuff is is the worst of the worst, really. And they all get away with it, right? No one's ever gotten really in trouble for using something like this. On, on it's a good question. It's something I really should know, but to the best of my knowledge, there hasn't been a state actor that's been uh, like brought before an international. Uh, uh, court of law and been indicted on the use of white phosphorus because the use of the weapon as such isn't legal. It's the way in which it's used. Um, it's only if um, it's, it's, it's used against civilians in a very particular way. Um, and yeah, I mean, states get away with all sorts of things though, right? It's yeah. not just white phosphorus. It's just international law isn't, um, there's, there's an inadequate deterrence in legal terms, which means the the punishment isn't the, the, the likelihood and severity of punishment um, is uh, severe enough, and so they do it anyway because they know they'll get away with it. And even if they were hypo, even if they were to hypothetically be prosecuted, um, what exactly that uh, that sentencing would be, or uh, or how they would be um, punished for its use, isn't clear, and probably wouldn't be that substantial. No, we saw them get away with a lot of things that would be, in terms of international law, be prosecuted for and get in trouble yeah. for. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the, a, yeah. yeah all, all these sorts of things are uh, much more reprehensible than the use of white phosphorus, if, if I'm being honest. But I'll say this I mean, as we're talking, I'm realizing how important this documentary actually is because it's not as documented or well known or brought to the attention of the public. I mean, this is really important, you know, uh, bringing world. bringing attention to it and really showing, you know, uh, the the horror of what this uh, weapon, you know, when used as a weapon, can really be. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's yeah. that's amazing. I mean, I'm glad you're there to do that and work with these doctors in the hospitals, and uh, it's pretty crazy. Uh, the international law aspect is um, a crucial part of the documentary. That's in terms of spreading awareness, um, like if the result of this documentary would be that um, there's more pressure on, uh, you know, international bodies like the UN and Human Rights Watch and um, ECHR 
to uh, change these laws. That would be a, a massive victory for me. And it's going to be a very exclusive documentary because people don't really get access to emergency rooms very often. Um, so it's, it's, it's going to be something that uh, a, a lot of people have never seen. Most people have never seen anything like this before. Um, and I was very lucky to be able to get access. It's all thanks really to Dr. Rafi Barsumian, who um, I met through a mutual friend in the Vernissage, and I told him I'm a journalist. And the next day I was filming in the emergency room. And so um, it was very serendipitous the way that I was able to film all this stuff. And um, I'm making sure to take full advantage of the special access that I was provided with. Uh, have you been able to kind of... Uh revisit some of these soldiers that you saw to see any progress maybe in their healing or, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. What's their, how, how are they doing right now? Yeah. I've done two follow-up interviews with soldiers that I had filmed with in the hospital. Um, I just went to Gori's last week to speak with, um, a soldier named Nadek. He's an older man. He's an officer. Uh, he was in the military, um, uh, a, a considerable, a considerable period before the war. Um, if you remember the trailer, he was the, I guess the third patient featured where his legs are completely scorched. You can see this very horrible green infection, just rampant on the backside of his legs. And then his hands also completely scorched. Uh, and he's, he's doing great. Like, I, I mean, in the interview, he was saying that I never thought I'd be able to walk again. Um, and he walks just fine. And, and in fact, he's going back to Sunic this week to, to continue fighting. So, wow. um, yes, the, the perseverance of some of these guys is, is remarkable. Um, the other soldier that I got to follow up with is uh, a younger soldier. He's 18. Uh, his name's Amerijan. Um, likewise, he had his hands completely scorched. Um, he's also in the trailer. Um, and uh, yeah, both of them, they, they have, I wouldn't say full use of their hands, but they will with some degree of um, persistent rehabilitation. Um, and, you know, Marijan before the war was, uh, he was really passionate about boxing. He was training a whole lot. Um, and so for him, yeah. he's just hoping that, uh, you know, he can get full use of his hands so we can, we can keep training, right? You know, these two soldiers that I got to speak with six months later, um, they're, they're big success stories, but, um, you know, I filmed at least a dozen soldiers and I'm sure there are some that are still having, uh, you know, a hell of a time and, and not to say that those two are. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, Finn, I'm curious in your investigation of, um, white phosphorus use so far over there, if there's anything that you have, um, you know, discovered or learned about that has shocked you, something that you, uh, might not have expected going into it. I mean, the, the entire thing is very shocking. I think just being um, in the hospital was, was a very novel experience. Um, you know, the most horrifying thing I saw was an infant with third degree burns, like covering their entire body. But this actually wasn't uh, as a result of white phosphorus. This is the burn center. Burn. So yeah, they have to deal with all sorts of other just routine injuries that happen. Um, and I think when I saw that, um, you know, it, it made me appreciate what these doctors do day in, day out, regardless if there's a war. Yeah. And, um, you know, 
it's it's very uh, it, t- it takes a lot of stoicism um, and 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 a thick skin to be doing that every single day. Um, I don't know. In terms of, like mm-hmm. it shocked me. Like um, just that this stuff is allowed to happen. Just that um, just that the international law is so obviously intended to provide a loophole. Um, like the fact that white phosphorus is classified as an obscurant first and an incendiary weapon second, and as a result doesn't isn't encompassed in the incendiary weapon laws is absurd. Um, like because as I, as I was saying earlier, the intention uh, of of Azerbaijan deploying this chemical is plainly clear for everybody to see, um, as is the toxic element of white phosphorus. Um, it's uh, it, it's obvious that it was used to inflict horrible, long-lasting damage on the people of Artsakh and the Armenian military. So um, I, I wouldn't say I'm surprised because I'm generally pretty cynical about international institutions anyway, but mm-hmm. uh, it's horrible nonetheless. I mean, don't you know, Finn, it's a, there's a lot of money to be made from, I don't know, uh, these tear gas, not tear gases, but these smoke bombs and the white phosphorus, man. No wonder oh, there's man. a loophole. Yeah, right now. Of course there is. And I'm, we're still trying to learn exactly where Azerbaijan sourced the white phosphorus. And that could be a, um, a point of controversy in the film. Yeah. I'll, I'll, re- I'll reveal when I know more about that. That is true. But so this is... Was would you say like the this war these wounds that you saw this is like the first exposure you've had as a conflict journalist like upfront and close right? To me, it's to me it's very obvious. You know, it's it's very obvious why I'm here. It's not, um, it's 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 not something that I find difficult to um, justify. Okay. I'm doing very important work here. Um, I've been treated very very. Uh, well by the Armenians who have hosted me, both the, you know, my hosts literally and then just the country in general. Um, you know, I, I came for the war, but I, I really stayed for Armenia. Like, I get to do a lot of cool things here. And it's it's not just conflict reporting anymore. Like, I get to film with musicians and uh, my good friends in the Ministry of Economy. So we're filming something about the Armenian economy. And I get to see, like, the the beautiful countryside. And I get to live in a country where um, there's free speech and there's no lockdowns and there's nice weather, I guess. And it's, yeah. it's, it's not, uh, it, it, it's very obvious to me why I'm here. I know for a lot of other people uh, looking from the outside, it, it seems like a, a crazy thing to do, but it's, it's very obvious to me why I'm here. And we're certainly glad you are Finn. Um, and, you know, like we've said before throughout this conversation, um, your work is vital and we're very excited to see you know, uh, the documentary that it leads you to, especially considering there's, um, you know, there are many other questions to continue uncovering. Um, I, I wish it could have been out sooner. Um, uh, I just have so many other projects that I'm working on for Zartonk. Like I filmed a video with BOMA, the, um, the reserve volunteer mm-hmm. training organization. Um, and like I said, I'm filming with musicians like Arthur Khachens and uh, Mikhail Voskanyan and, um, and I, I just, so many other projects and it's just really me and my, uh, my video editor, Sarah to do all of it. So, um, 
with that, I'd like to plug our Patreon and our donor box if you can help. I was going to say, how can we support you out there? Like to continue your work? Like I want you to stay in Armenia. I know it's selfish, but how can we help you guys? Uh, yeah, just, just donate to, uh, Zartank media through our donor box or join our Patreon where you get a little more out of your donation. You get digital downloads of a whole bunch of my photos and, um, exclusive access to me and the team. And then, uh, furthermore, uh, the big thing is soon we're going to be selling, uh, print versions of, uh, some of my better photographs. Um, so that's, that's going to be really awesome. That's something that's going to stand your wall forever. Um, or for as long as you wanted to stay up there, I guess, but, um, uh, you, you, you get something tangible and, um, uh, something tangible to hang on your wall and it reminds you of Armenia, it reminds you of the war or the struggle or whatever. And, uh, that's, that's a great way to support my work in oh. Zartong. It was, I mean, I'm, I see your photography so I can say it's amazing and I, I'd, I'd love to have one of those. Um, and I remember I, even on my house today, Finn, um, and I think most Armenian households I've been to has this picture book of, and it's just called Artsakh and it's, there's a little, little girl's face on it and it's just photos of from when someone went in the nineties, you know, like after that first oh, war really? and it was something like that, that a lot of our households have. So what you're doing is actually, um, uh, it could be on every, you know, coffee table and could you know, a around staple, the world. Yeah. A staple in our homes. Yeah. If you could save one uh, for us, Finn, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, if you could send it, I'll come pick one up in Armenia in a little bit, but, um, but great. yeah, if everyone listening to support, you know, follows our tongue, could we also follow your page, right? Maybe to see some of your own work, your own, uh, per, uh personal work. So, uh, yeah, at Finn looked into it. Um, I most, focused on Armenia I post random things that I read in the news every day also mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I'm excited to uh, see what comes next I will I mean I'm gonna be doing some reporting in um, in Syria probably sometime in the next year and uh, mm -hmm. on an article uh, about uh, the Siberian Chinese border so um, I can't be just uh, a token Armenian forever but uh, mm -hmm. I will be I, I, it, this this will always be the um, the the start of my career, really. I mean, because everything mm -hmm. that I've done before this doesn't just it just doesn't come close in in terms of significance and reach and everything. So, that being said, I'm 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 really excited to see all the work you do in the future, man. And again, we appreciate everything you've done in Armenia. So, and we're looking forward to seeing the documentary. Yes, definitely. Then thank okay. you so much. So that's with you, Barry Gisher. We'll talk. Awesome. Thank you, man. Okay, see you guys. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of High Tuk Talks, and be sure to stay tuned for the Zartonk Media docu-series titled The Other Frontline, The Armenian Medical System's Fight Against White Phosphorus, available on IGTV and YouTube beginning this July. I'm Krista Marina Apardian. And I'm Haig Minasyan. And we're just a couple of Armenians. Talking in the world. A couple of Armenians talking in the world.